made in the UK for MSPs around the world. This is Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. Hello and welcome to a special extended episode of the MSP Marketing Podcast. Now, one of the most common questions that I'm asked by MSPs is how do I get new clients? I think it's the number one marketing question because MSPs are great at retaining clients and upselling them. The challenge is always in bringing new people on board. So I recently had an opportunity to do a marketing consultation for an MSP owner. He's not someone who's a client. We were just chatting on LinkedIn and I realized there was an opportunity here to do a really in-depth, if you like, a deep dive consultation for him on how to get brand new clients in a way that actually benefits you as well. And he very graciously allowed me to record the whole thing. And that's what today's episode is. So this is about three times, four times longer than a normal episode. But I think as you listen in, you'll realize this has an immense power in helping you to get more new clients for your MSP. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast. Uh, My name is Jim Smith, and I'm the owner of Proper Sky. We are a managed service provider located outside of Philadelphia. So Jim, you and I caught up on LinkedIn, and we started chatting on LinkedIn about your business and about how difficult it can be sometimes to get more new clients and increase your monthly recurring revenue and net profit and all the things that most MSPs want to increase. So I thought it'd be quite handy for us to to have a chat and essentially for for me to give you a consult. And of course, this this could form part of the podcast. So let's start by just getting a very brief history of your business. So tell us how you got started, how long you've been running, how many techs you've got, and what kind of clients you're working with right now. I started in 2006. I was actually in the United States Peace Corps. We, We helped a lot of nonprofits and small businesses. I was stationed in a little island in the South Pacific called Tonga. It's a small country, about 100,000 people. And uh, one of the things that was consistently clear to me is that there were a lot of people doing IT that didn't do it very well. And so when I got back to the States, uh, I decided that instead of getting a job, I'd start my own business, helping nonprofits and small businesses with their IT. So in 2006, I actually, uh, I wrote a little script, uh, believe it or not, that would read Craigslist. And uh, if anybody mentioned the word server or Windows or Linux or something along those lines, it would actually text me uh, a message. So, you know, 2006, it was pretty high tech. And the uh, first uh, five people I called, uh, four of them are, are still customers to this day. Uh, believe that's amazing. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's, that, that was how it started. So, and, and ironically, the first customer that I landed, I was helping them with a, uh, an Ubuntu server, an Ubuntu mail server for a Nigerian arts collective. And uh, this guy ended up partnering up with another guy in Atlanta that um, was purchasing dermatology practices. So they purchased their first practice in Philadelphia. I helped build their data center. Uh, we helped, uh, you know, at the time it was a 2003, server 2003 cluster with SQL Server backend. That practice grew from uh, four providers and four offices to, I think it was almost 70 providers and 60 offices across seven states by the time we were done. And I just sort of grew up on the back of those guys between 2006 and 2013. So at one time we were, I think uh, 12 was, was my staffing level at that point. Then that company uh, crashed spectacularly and went out of business. So in 2013, they were 90% of my monthly recurring revenue. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. That was so, a massive whale then. Huge whale. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. a huge whale. I mean, so basically- you, Well, you did quite well to survive because to lose 90% of your monthly recurring revenue and still be here seven years later- I'll tell you. So we, we, we had actually, uh, we purchased lab tech. They had given me a free uh, pass, I think, to the IT Nation conference, which I, you know, I had never been to. I went to that conference. And I was sitting at the bar feeling sorry for myself. And I bumped into this guy um, who was another MSP from Seattle. He was like, listen, there, there's a guy uh, that knows a lot about this, but you need to look at your business as a way for you to sustain a lifestyle and not being a technician. You know? And he's like, take a look at the way that managed services are run and the model of it. And, uh, you know, I, I think you, you'll find that you'll have some pretty good success. You know, I came back from that, that conference renewed and I basically had a whole bunch of break fix customers that I picked up over the years, just small doctor's offices and just, you know, random people that, that I bumped into and helped. And I basically said, Hey, listen, we're only selling managed services contracts. We're not doing hourly work any longer. And if you want us to be able to help you, here's what it's going to look like. And that was 2013. So now we're back up to, uh, we were at nine we, we were hiring a new, uh, dispatcher and salesperson. So you're up to nine staff again now then. And let's talk about what kind of clients you'd like for the business. So is it, is it, is it general clients that you have just in the, in the Philly area? Correct. So we target right now specifically the five counties in and around Philadelphia. 
paint me a picture of what the perfect client looks like. So let's say the phone rang today and you picked up the phone and it's someone who said, oh, I've been referred to you or, you know, I've been on your website and you say, well, tell me a little bit about your business and imagine everything they say, every single word they say has you salivating because you just want this person as a client and you want their business. What does that business look like? The business has significant investment in technology and that's either in the way of cloud or they understand the value of providing uh, accessible toolkits and, and just tools to their staff. Right. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that we always look for is, you know, somebody that, that really tries to invest highly in technology. The other thing is um, we also look for organizations that are regulated. So we, we, we have a lot of solid experience in the HIPAA and medical space. So, you know, doctors and physician groups are always pretty good fits for us. You know, generally speaking, we look for people that are looking to partner with an IT company uh, and just outsource the headache, right? So we, we want to basically serve as the, you know, the, the virtual CIO, if you will, right? So we, we don't want them to have to worry about the, the day-to-day technology. They understand that it's important for the organization. They get its importance, but they really want to be able to speak to a business owner uh, about what their needs are and not necessarily ace in, in a uh, technical capacity. Right. So, so that's good. And you know, a big old budget. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. absolutely. And I must, I must at this point point out um, for, for most of my UK listeners will, will know this, but most of my US listeners won't, which is that in the US, you guys get away with charging what seems like 10 times more than MSPs can get away with charging in the UK. And we have no idea why it's, why there's this disparity, but you know, you sometimes I, I see things in forums, places like the tech tribe, which I'm a member of, or my own MSP marketing Facebook group. And you know, U.S. people will talk about charging several hundred dollars or, you know, a couple of hundred dollars per user. And here in the U.K., we're charging the equivalent of $50 per user. It's absolutely insane. But there we go. That's just that's just the way of the world. So I'm going to come back to regulated industries later because that gives me a germ of a marketing idea, which I want to come back to in a bit. But what are you doing marketing-wise right now? So not let, let's forget your existing clients for now and how you're upselling them and servicing them. Let's just part them. Let's talk about new clients. So specifically, what are you doing right now to, to get new clients into the business? A, a, lot of, a lot of what's on your podcast resonates with me. So most buyers nowadays are a bit more sophisticated, right? So there's so much more information and it's so much easier to vet the quality of a managed services provider online without ever picking up the phone, right? And not only that, but uh, you know, a, a customer is so far down into the buying cycle once they're searching for managed services that they're, they're pretty much ready to commit or they know exactly what they're looking for and, and the sort of relationship they're looking to establish. So with all that being said, I've been focusing on very specific, what I consider down-level keywords in Google AdWords. Um, in my marketplace, it's very expensive. It's, uh, it could be anywhere from 35 to 45 US dollars per click uh, for the, the search term, you know, managed services. So we have some, some traction there. Um, I have a, an organization that I had hired. I had outsourced my marketing originally to uh, an organization well-known in the MSP space. And they, they had recommended doing long tail geographical landing pages. And we tried that for about a year. We didn't get much traction. Um, I hired on an agency. For, for us, it was a pretty, pretty high spend. We did a lot of content marketing. We were using you know, outsourced content marketing. And we were doing email blasts. Uh, we were doing some social media stuff. Um, and uh, we also just recently turned to buying inbound links through different services. It's kind of a hodgepodge. So I, I've been focusing less on sales and I guess more on marketing. Um, but I, I haven't really found the silver bullet. I, I don't really know where I need to be spending my time and energy. Um, and and that's, that's, you know, I think part of the challenge. Yeah. And, and obviously that's led to this conversation. So do you have, you mentioned you're doing email blasts. Is that to a database of your own prospects that you've put together? Yes and no. So we have not done a very good job at collecting potential leads email addresses, right? So we, we, we have some captured forms on our website, the contact form. Uh, one, one of the projects I've actually been working on is we're, we're a ConnectWise shop. You know, not to speak ill of ConnectWise, they've been a fantastic partner and I love it, but their, their email newsletter tool leaves a little bit to be desired. So um, what we've been trying to do is integrate our ConnectWise tool with our uh, CRM tool. In this case, we're using Zoho and we're trying to set up a two-way sync between the creation of accounts and prospects inside of ConnectWise that sync into Zoho and then putting the leads into Zoho and then choosing which ones to sync back into ConnectWise. 
and then using Zoho as the marketing tool because there's so much more integration and in, in, in visibility into who's looking at what on your website based on the content that you're sending out. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, there is so much we can talk about off the back of this. Um, I must just mention in terms of ConnectWise not being a great CRM, I, I don't think ConnectWise is, is a great marketing tool. Um, I'm, I'm sure I have no direct experience of it, but I'm sure Autotask is the same because that's not what they're designed for, of course. Whereas right. you look at something like Zoho CRM or MailChimp or MailerLite or ActiveCampaign or Infusionsoft, which are all designed from the ground up to be marketing tools. And I think you know that, that kind of integration between the two is a good idea, although, and, and maybe we'll come back to this down the line, um, ConnectWise really shouldn't be used for any marketing at all. I would focus ConnectWise on delivering to your existing clients and focus Zoho or whichever CRM you're using to, to focus on prospecting. And it's only when someone becomes a client that you, you shift them off, off Zoho and into ConnectWise. So I realized two different systems kind of jars with people because we all want nice, elegant things that talk to each other, but actually, you know, marketing to prospects and delivering to clients are two completely different jobs with different communication levels. But we'll come on to that if we can. So, First of all, you're in a really, really good position, Jim. And apart from the fact that you, you've nearly lost the business seven years ago and you recovered, and we, we could have that conversation with 100 people in the same boat, and 95 of them will have gone under and gone and got a job. And I don't know about you, but that's my idea of hell, is ever having to work for someone else ever again. So exactly. ma massive, genuinely massive round of applause to you for, for you know, pulling around a, a business turnaround like that. Because you've been through that, I think it's probably made you more resilient than a hell of a lot more people. You know, I think m many of us have been through good times and bad times and been through recessions, but to, to be in a position where you've essentially got to start again from scratch, you know, seven, eight years after you've, you've, you've hard work down the, down the plug hole is, is, a, is a massive thing. So you've got this mental resilience, which is awesome. I think the other thing you've got going in your favor is you're doing stuff. So you're investing into SEO, SEO being search engine optimization. You're spending on Google ads, even though it's costing you $30, $40 a click. You're hiring marketing agencies. You're doing content marketing. This is awesome. Because and I don't know if you've, if you've found this in your marketplace, but in most marketplaces I look at, there are very few MSPs that are actually doing any marketing at all. So you take, I mean, how many, how many MSPs would there be in, in, in your marketplace in Philadelphia? Hundreds? Okay. Hundreds, yeah. Hundreds, yeah. And, you know, if we were to do a Google search and look to see how many are actively on Google or how many are doing something or they're actually putting stuff on their blog or active on social media, it will be a reasonably small percentage of those. It's not going to be a massive number of them. And that's quite exciting because that, what that does is that creates opportunity for a, a small number of players in each marketplace. And we would see this not just in Philadelphia, not just in the States, we would see this absolutely worldwide. So the fact that you understand that you need to market and you, you need to do stuff gives you a massive, massive psychological advantage over all of your competitors. So I've, I've said this a few times uh, in the podcast over the last year or so, or the last half year or so, which is you don't need to outrun everyone. You just need to outrun a few of your competitors. It's like the analogy of if, if you and I were, were in the woods and we were, we were hiking and suddenly a bear wakes up from hibernation and starts chasing us. And we ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. And eventually we got to a clearing and we're both utterly exhausted and we can't run anymore. And you start to, you, you take off your shoes and you get your, your trainers, your sneakers out of your backpack and you put them on your feet. And I'd say to you, what, what are you doing? Are you mad? We've got to outrun the bear. And you say, no, no, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. <laughs> and, and, and that's all that you've got to do. You haven't got to outrun hundreds of MSPs. You've just got to outrun two or three uh, that, you know, that, that are also active marketing in your marketplace. And, and by default, you kind of beat the others. So I think what I think I can help you with today, and this will be useful for all the MSPs listening to this, is to give you some strategy to put onto this, uh, on, onto your marketing. So you're doing a whole bunch of tactical stuff, which is brilliant, but I, th I think there's, there's just a bit of a strategy shift. And the great news is it's not a massive, massive difference to what you're doing now. It's just giving it some more shape, some more mm -hmm. format so that it can actually be more useful for you. So the first thing I want to cover off is the principle of long-term marketing for MSPs. So I love, I love working with MSPs because most of them don't market, which is great for someone who supplies marketing services, but also because, as you were saying earlier, when you, when you win a client, you keep them for years. You've still got your first client that you got from a Craigslist scrape 
which is pretty impressive. But then we can talk to most MSPs who have got their first or their second or their third client still, you know, 10, 20 years on. So MSPs keep clients for a really long time. And that means your average lifetime value of a client can be absolutely massive. It can be, I'm sure that that, that client has been with you for what coming on for nearly 20 years is, is probably spent hundreds of thousands of dollars with you over their time. So the average lifetime value is massive. That means you can afford to invest a fairly significant sum of money to win a new client. Jim, do you have an idea in your head of how much you would be willing to spend to win a new client tomorrow? That is a good question, Paul. I do not know the answer to that. Um, okay. But if I said to you, I've got a client, they're going to stick with you for another 10 years. They're going to spend oh. two, $3,000 a month for the next 10 years. Um, and they're yours. Give me $5,000. Would you give me that $5,000? Easily, I would give you 5% of the total cost. Uh, okay. Up to, ten, okay. Up to 10. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, there we go. So you, you're, and, and that's is absolutely the right mindset because the reality is it's going to cost you that much to win a new client anyway. If ever you look at um, how much you spend on marketing every year, so that's every single dollar, cent, pound, penny that you spend, every added up, uh, add it all up, add your time in every single hour you spend doing something and you divide it by the total number of new clients, which is probably a very small number because most MSPs only win a, a handful of new clients every year. And you look at the cost of that and it's probably already costing you, you know, a few thousand, if not several thousand dollars per new client. So it's really exciting that you've, you've um, we've got this really big average lifetime value. What's also exciting is most MSPs benefit from something called inertia loyalty. So this is one of the reasons you have these clients for so many years. I mean, some of them, you super serve them, you've got special relationships with them, but then there'll be a whole bunch of clients you've got that you don't necessarily super serve them. You just look after them well. You're not really completely embedded in their business as a partner as much as you say you are. They're just, they're just clients. And we all have clients like these. We have super clients and we have average clients. And then we have a couple of really terrible clients that we really should fire. And those kind of middling clients, they stay with you partly because they're enjoying what you're doing, but partly out of inertia loyalty. It just feels like it's too difficult to go anywhere else. And this is what makes your sales cycle so long. Because when you're speaking to someone else who's thinking of switching from their incumbent MSP and switching over to you, the thing that stops them from doing it is inertia loyalty. And Jim, maybe you've had this yourself where you've had a really good set of meetings with a the prospect. They're really engaged. They like the price. They like the service. They like you. And you know they don't like their incumbent. They're disappointed with the service levels. They're disappointed with how things aren't as good as they used to be. You put in a proposal. Everything's great. And then you call them up a few weeks later and they've decided to sign another contract with their incumbent, even though they don't like them. Have you ever been in that situation? Absolutely. Yeah. And most MSPs have, and it's really frustrating. And you think maybe you've done something wrong, but no, you haven't. It's, this is inertia loyalty at play. Now we need to know about this inertia loyalty because this is the thing which slows the sales down and it comes down to an emotional decision. And Jim, you may have heard me say this on the podcast before that the decision makers that we want to reach, the business owners and the managers who we're trying to win over as new clients, they don't know much about technology at all. They don't know much about managed services, about IT support. In fact, they don't know what they don't know. And so for that reason, they can't make cognitive decisions about picking a new MSP. They literally cannot tell the difference between one MSP and another. They, they, they can't look at you and decide if you're a good MSP or not. So when they can't make those cognitive decisions, it becomes a purely emotional decision. So if I put this another way, your prospects are picking you or not picking you based on whether or not they like you. And this is a kind of a punch in the face for all those exams and all those qualifications and all those accreditations and partnerships, because people are picking you whether or not they like you or don't like you. Sure, if you can't deliver the service, they'll soon leave you. But the reality is you can deliver the service because you've kept clients for near on 20 years. So if they're making emotional decisions, what we've got to make sure we do is appeal to them at an emotional level. And we've got to give them plenty of emotional reasons to pick you. So roughly, and we're kind of making these figures up now, but 80% of their decision is based on their emotional reaction and 20% is based on their cognitive reaction. So in our marketing, we've got to give them lots of emotional reasons to pick you. And then we've got to give them a small amount of cognitive reason for their brain to rubber stamp the decision. Their heart will make the decision, their brain will rubber stamp it. 
So there's a three-step strategy that I recommend for this. And there's loads more about this on my website. If you go to paulgreensmspmarketing.com and go to the blog, you'll see that I mean, there's four, four and a half years worth of content there of videos and articles and infographics and all sorts of stuff explaining this exact process and embellishing it and going into a hell of a lot of detail. But essentially, the, the three-step process to get more new clients and to build relationships with them is first of all, to drive quality traffic. We're going to come back to that one in a second because that's a biggie. The second thing then is instead of just driving quality traffic to our website, to use it to build audiences instead. And again, we'll come back to what that means. Hmm. So we're going to drive quality traffic. We're going to build audiences. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to build a relationship with them. So if we go back to the very first of those, which is driving quality traffic, and it sounds like you're already on top of some of the traffic sources. I and mean, the three big traffic sources for MSPs are the big three platforms. So Google, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And I'm not surprised to hear that you're paying $35, $40 a click for a major you know, metropolitan city. That sounds about right. And you know, Google was cheap 15 years ago, wasn't it? But it's, it's certainly not cheap these days. Um, no, it's not. No, yeah. it's not. And you know, the, the downside of... Google ads is that it's, it's a, it's a one-off hit. You pay you $40, you get someone on your website and then 12 seconds later, they go back, they hit the back button. They don't realize they've just cost you $40. They don't realize that the, you know, that they're literally sucking cash out of your bank account and giving it to, to Larry and Sergey. Actually, they're not even there anymore, but you get the idea. Yeah. So, um, Google ads are great for short-term traffic, but really long-term, I would be focusing on SEO on search engine optimization to appear up at the top. Now, Google have completely revamped over the last sort of five years the way they do their search listings. And it's actually quite hard now to be at the top of Google. If you remember five, 10 years ago, people would talk about, you know, oh, let's get up to, to, to the top of page one of Google. The top of page one of Google is now two swipes down on a mobile phone. Of course, most people are doing this on their mobiles. You've got to swipe down twice past the adverts, which look like organic listings, which is a very cruel trick that Google have pulled off. The adverts look exactly the same as organic listings, apart from a tiny little green thing that says ad. So you've got to swipe past those. Uh, you've got to swipe past the map because Google has decided that IT support is a retail business and therefore it brings up the map and then you get to the top of Google. And I think long-term you'd be better off taking those, you know, $40 per click and investing that into search engine optimization so that you, you are, and, and, and that's probably a very big ask in a city like Philadelphia. And I'm not a technical expert on SEO, but I think long-term you, you want to be getting more organic placings higher up because then you're, you're not paying that cost per click then. So you might get lower amounts of traffic from it, but that traffic is going to be higher quality and it's going to be people who are looking directly for what it is that you sell. So that's the first platform. Second platform is LinkedIn. What are you doing on LinkedIn at the moment? Right now, I, I, I try to engage with uh, different people that I've met and uh, you know I post maybe once or twice a week, I, I, I try to find something that I, I believe is meaningful or um, engaging, I guess. And then I just sort of post there. And then I also just, you know, once a day, I reach out to vendors or I, I, I check different, you know, partners and see what they're posting about. I try to comment and upvote as much as I can, uh, get involved in some partner sites. I see LinkedIn as the number one B2B marketing tool for MSPs right now. Jim, when you started the business all those years ago, if I'd said to you, hey, how would you like a database of virtually every prospect out there, which is completely searchable, it's virtually the most up-to-date database on the planet, uh, you can search for anyone, you can connect to virtually anyone, you can message virtually anyone, oh, and by the way, it's free for actually pretty good functionality. Would you be interested in that? And, you know, all those years ago, you'd have, you'd have snapped my hand off, wouldn't you? It would have been amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's how we've got to look at LinkedIn because LinkedIn is a bit of a pain. It does feel like everyone is there selling to us all the time. And, you know, it feels like everyone's putting content on, but the reality is it's just a massive up-to-date database. So there's, there's three things that I recommend you do with LinkedIn every day. And they're the three C's. The three C's are connect, content, and contact. And let me go take you through the three of them. The first of them is connect. So do you, do you pay for LinkedIn or do you pay for sales navigator or is it just a free? Uh, no, I've, I've been considering it. I wasn't sure if it was worth the money, but you know, I'm, I'm convinced now. Uh, okay. Well, if, well, it's, it's, I don't think it is worth the money to be honest. Oh. Um, so and, and apologies to anyone from Microsoft or LinkedIn that's, that's listening to this. Um, but sales navigator is actually really expensive and all it does is it takes the, takes the, the, the breaks off. So on the free version of LinkedIn, you can connect to, and if, if I've got this figure wrong, don't shoot me because these figures change all the time, but I think it's around about 20 a day. So you can attempt to connect to 20 people a day. And for most MSPs that are spending a maximum of an hour a day on LinkedIn, that's enough. 
that really is enough. And if you attempted to connect to 20 people a day, every single day, five days a week, you know, that's a hundred potential connections uh, a week. Even if only 10% of those people actually accept your friend request or your connection request, you're growing your, your LinkedIn audience by, by 10 people every week, which is pretty powerful in the long term. With all of these things, it's the long term, it's the compound that, that really makes the difference. So I would just be connecting to up to 20 people a day. In terms of who you connect to, you just got to ask yourself, who's out there in the marketplace that I want to speak to? And actually an, an Uber tip for this is to find someone else who's already connected to the people that you want and then go and look at their connections. So for example, I don't know if you, if you go physically networking in, in ever at all in, in your area. Uh, me, I find networking a, a bit of a drag. I don't like getting out there, but it is quite useful to know who's out there, who are the Uber networkers who are going out and meeting people, connect to them on LinkedIn and then go and have a look at their connections. Because if someone is out networking in your area three, two, three, four times a week or more, then they are going to be connected to virtually everyone else who is, is out there. So it's always a lot easier to say, you know, see who else is out there. Who are, the, who are the lawyers who are most active? Actually, no, you wouldn't do this to lawyers, would you? Who are the CPAs, the accountants who are most active in the area? Who's running advertising campaigns? Who, you know, who's the, who's the go-to person for something? These are the people you should be connected to on LinkedIn and then go and have a look at their connections to see who you'd be most interested in. And there are actually a couple of tools that you can use, which are strictly against LinkedIn's terms and conditions, but they, they work, most of them, is they, they sit as a plug-in to your Chrome. So they essentially are automating human behavior on your behalf. One of them is called Ducks Soup, which is D-U-X-Soup, as in soup that we, we drink. There's another one that's called, I think it's called LinkedIn Helper. And there's a third one that's called Alfred. If you just Google Alfred LinkedIn, and all of these just automate your behavior for you. So they do come with the health warning and you need to follow their instructions and do exactly what they, what they say, uh, because I say they're, they're technically against LinkedIn's terms and conditions, but there are automated tools to help you with this. So our three C's, we've got the first C is connect. The second C is content. And you said you posted, was it two, three times a week? Uh, yeah, I'd say that's probably fair. Yeah. Okay. So I would turn that into five days a week. And it might feel like that's too much, but on social media, that's not too much because social media is constant disposable content. And the kind of content that you should be posting, I would forget responding to vendors and talking about high level stuff. Because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to build a database of people who could potentially buy from you and engage with them and build a relationship with them. So I would focus on talking about things that are of interest to ordinary business owners and managers, but making sure you talk about it from their point of view. So for example, um, let's think about something, laptop encryption, for example. You and I know that everyone should have their laptops encrypted. Do all of your clients have their laptops encrypted? Yes. Oh, okay. So you're, you're actually ahead of the curve on that one then. So you could, you could um, write something on LinkedIn. It literally need to be a couple of hundred words just off the top of your head of here's why every single one of my clients has an encrypted laptop. And you would then talk about the benefits of laptop encryption. And when I say talk about them, I don't mean the technical aspects of it, but the data safety aspects. Or you could throw a story out like, let's say you were, obviously this, this wouldn't be when we were you know, in lockdown or in quarantine, but let's say when you were, you're on your way back uh, on a train, back from the city, back home one night, you accidentally fall asleep on the train, you manage to just wake up as it's your stop, you rush off the train, yes, you did it. And then you realize you left your laptop on the train. And for my, if that happens to my clients, it's a minor inconvenience because no one can access their data. No one can do anything with it. All they've got to worry about is getting a replacement device and we put their data back on their device for them. But if you haven't got an encrypted laptop, suddenly you've left all your data for anyone to read. That could be all your client data. It could be all of your business data. It could be all your financial details and anyone can read it. So can you see how that's written from the, from the prospect's point of view? Yeah, Absolutely. the decision point. Yeah, Absolutely. And, that, and that's the kind of content that's a hell of a lot more interesting to them than the kind of technical stuff that, that, that we are interested in. Essentially, anything you see on any of the, the channel websites is, is not of interest to ordinary people. And maybe that's a slightly extreme way of putting it, but you know, it's so easy to get caught up in latest products, vendor this, vendor that, and it's ju it just doesn't resonate with ordinary people. What resonates with them is really basic stuff like the fear of losing data, the fear of losing their business, losing money, losing time, all of those kind of things. And we've got to translate all the techie stuff so that it's of interest to them. 
So we've got connect is the first C, content is the second C. Oh, and actually on content, we need to, um, you, you mentioned about commenting as well. Commenting on other people's posts is a great way to drive people to your personal profile as well. Because uh, in fact, it's a great way of getting people to friend request or connection request you. So you almost want to seek out people in your city who are saying interesting things, especially those people we were talking about who are uber connected and go and comment on their posts, particularly if you can add some value. And you should, you know, you can use hashtags to go and look for things like, you know, hashtag technology, hashtag computer, hashtag windows. So there's, there's probably a thousand that we can think of. And you can do all sorts of, of clever searches to try and find people in your area who are talking about things that really you should be commenting on. All of this is part of, of painting you as an authority figure, as, as someone, if you, oh, this is such a cliche, but a thought leader. I mean, LinkedIn defines itself as interesting people talking about the things that matter to you. Um, somebody from LinkedIn stood up and said that on a stage once. LinkedIn is interesting people talking about things that matter to you. So your challenge, Jim, is to find those people in, in, you know, in just 10, 20 minutes every day and, and comment on their posts. And ultimately, you're, you're going to get some more traffic from that. So our first C was connect. Our second C was content. And our third C is contact. Now, as you start to build up your LinkedIn profile with the kind of people that you'd really like to talk to, you need to start contacting those people because you're going to have a database and there's no point having a database on LinkedIn unless you're working, really working that database. So there's two types of contact that I recommend. The first is just to drop them a message. And once you're connected to someone on LinkedIn, you can just message them. You can actually automate this with some of those tools we were talking about earlier. Uh, personally, I think a blend of automated messaging and real life messaging is the right thing to do. And you might just sit and go through your database once or twice a week, go through, have a look, say, all oh, right, David Smith, I haven't spoken to him ever. I'm just going to drop him a message. Message. And you, you might have, it might be something that you copy and paste, but it might be just a, hi, David, uh, it's been, we've been connected for a few weeks now. I run a local IT support company, uh, just half a mile, a couple of miles down the road from you. Tell me what, what's frustrating you with your technology right now. And even, I mean, that's quite a crass way of, of jumping into it, but there's a number of different things you can do. And what I would recommend is you do what you're comfortable with. So if you're a very aggressive salesperson and you're not afraid to, to put it out there, you'd be more aggressive with your messaging. If you're more comfortable just taking it easy and building a relationship over time, then you just start to get to know people. But you, our thinking is, we always think that everyone's commenting and everyone's messaging and the reality is they're not. A LinkedIn stat I found about three or four months ago said that something like only 3% of people who are active users of LinkedIn post content uh, once a week more or, or once a week or more than once a week. So it's not wow. everyone that's posting content. I know it's, it's, I may have that stack slightly wrong, but it's not a massive, massive number of people. You know, I, if I look, I'm connected to just under 3,300 people as of time of recording. And I get probably four messages a week that are unsolicited. So you'd think with three, more than 3000 connections, I'd be bombarded with people trying to sell me stuff. And the reality is I'm not. And maybe my audience is slightly skewed because I've been doing a lot of, of audience building from my side, but I wouldn't, you, you can't be scared of this stuff. You know, the worst thing that can happen, well, the, the, the second worst thing that can happen is they ignore you. And the worst thing that can happen is that they can send you back some abuse. In fact, maybe we'd flip those around. Maybe it's worse to be ignored than it is to get some abuse back because that's still engagement, but there we go. So um, Google, so we were talking about uh, driving traffic. Google was our, one of our big platforms. LinkedIn was our big platform. And the third big platform is Facebook. And Facebook is not a B2B marketing platform. Facebook is aimed at consumers, but we can use it to reach the B2B decision makers that we want in their downtime. And where Facebook really has a power for you is if you were to run some adverts on a Friday or a Saturday or a Sunday, you can reach people who are bored. Business owners and decision makers who like to operate at a high level, who are in their downtime and they're, they're frankly just a little bit bored. And this can be a very powerful thing to do. So I think for Facebook, the power for you is running ads and run them at weekends. Now, Facebook in America adverts work much better in America than they do in the UK because you have sheer bulk numbers of people to reach. How many people live in Philadelphia? Uh, in the Philadelphia metro, it's uh, something around 5 million, I believe. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, just, yeah. that's just enormous. And even if you said, you know, what percentage of those are business owners, it might be, what, 20%, 30%, something like that. Yeah, I, the M MSLA, which is the uh, census, so I, I believe there's something like 400,000 businesses in around oh, That's amazing. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's 400,000 people for you, for you to reach. You know, no, no one in any city in, in the UK would have anywhere near those, those number of figures. Because Facebook ads work best if, you, if you're throwing an ad at big numbers, really big numbers. So you might run a campaign Friday to Sunday, and you might limit 
limit it to two or $300, and, but still target those 400,000 business owners. And your campaign might be very simply to persuade them to come and join your email list for example. So you might have something that you're giving away in return for them to come and join your email list. Now I'm going to talk about that a little bit more because do you remember I was talking about the three-step process? The three-step process being drive quality traffic. The second step was build audiences or build multiple audiences. And the third step was then build a relationship with them. So this is where we start to go into building multiple audiences because the long-term power of marketing for your MSP is to build some audiences and build a relationship with them. And there's really two to three audiences that you absolutely have to build. The very first one and the one that's most important is your email list. So yes, you might run some Facebook adverts at weekends, every single weekend aimed at business owners in your area aimed at driving them to your website and getting them to give you their email address and essentially opt in to your email database. Now, the reason you'd want them to do this is you want to have a bunch of people that you can send regular emails to. And the reason why your email list is the most important list is simply because we cannot trust Mark Zuckerberg and we cannot trust LinkedIn not to steal those other audiences from us because the other audiences you want to build are LinkedIn and possibly on Facebook. And I'll come back to that in a second. LinkedIn is great. It's a great place to build a huge following, but tomorrow morning they could change the algorithm. And that's what I mean by them stealing it from us. You know, LinkedIn will have its own targets, its own priorities. They could change the algorithm tomorrow. They could detect that we're using automated tools tomorrow. You could be blocked tomorrow. It happened to me about a year ago when I've got a massive Facebook group, the MSP Marketing Facebook group. And as of time of recording, we've got nearly 800 members. And about a year ago, they changed the algorithm. And most of my content stopped appearing in the news feeds of the members of my group. And luckily, very luckily, they reversed that within a couple of weeks. But I had a couple of weeks where engagement absolutely fell off the cliff. And anything I put in that group, virtually no one saw it. And I live in fear of that happening every single day. So that's why, you know, as much as Facebook and LinkedIn are great places to build audiences, the only audience that you completely control is your email list. So, Jim, you said you're using Zoho CRM. So I know quite a few MSPs use, and I understand it's quite a, quite a good bit of kit, which is great. Can from that, do you generate, can you generate a form which goes into your website that someone can fill in to enter your database? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, we actually do that right now. There's uh, one, two, three, four forms on the website and all of them feed into Zoho. Perfect. Uh, yeah. Perfect. So, so, and what do get people get when they, does, what does it say on the forms that they will get in return for them giving you their email address? Uh, you've hit right at the heart of the issue, Paul. So uh, one was supposed to be a free consultation for a network evaluation, right? Which uh, I, I, you know, I, I think my click through rate is like 0.06% or something. It's, it's, it's terrible. Uh, the contact form is actually located in the footer of the website. So uh, on, on every page. So people scroll down to the bottom that that has a click through rate. It's not very good. Uh, and the contact form serves dual purpose where it's sales and service. So I'm going to say about 50% of the, the info that comes in there is either sales or some sort of vendor trying to sell something. Uh, and then the other half is support requests. Um, okay. So, okay. So offering yeah. the free audit sounds like a great idea. It's actually, uh, it's, it's a step too far too soon. So someone who's just on your website browsing around, they know, they, you said right at the beginning that people are becoming more sophisticated and they know that a free network audit is, is giving you the ammunition that you need to sell them stuff. And they're not stupid about that. So it's, it's for someone who's in a relationship with you already, and I mean a marketing relationship, that might be an appropriate next step at some point. And we'll, we'll come on to that in a second. But the, for someone who's just browsing your website, they're not going to give their email address to get that because it, it's, it's, they're making a commitment to you. And people these days don't like to make a commitment until they're so, so ready to actually make that commitment. So what I'd recommend you did instead, Jim, is give away some kind of information. And we call this an ethical bribe. So the kind of information that you'd give away is something which can be packaged up as something they've got to have so much so that they will enter their contact details to do so. Now, you, there's a great example of this actually on my website because, you know, I've built now, this is my second business that I've built using exactly this model. And I, by the way, all the marketing I'm talking about here is exactly what I do with my own marketing. I drink my own Kool-Aid to, to use a phrase that's, that's passed around. And um, if you go onto my website, which is paulgreensmspmarketing.com, you'll see on the homepage, I'm offering you a book. 
And it's a book that I wrote actually four years ago. It's called Updating Servers Doesn't Grow Your Business. You can get a copy for free and we, we ship them. We literally send them out physically free in the USA and in the UK and everywhere else in the world, it's a PDF. And, and you fill in your details. And the reason that people, and we've had more than 2,000 MSPs now, fill in their details to get a copy of that book. And in my last business, which I sold in 2016, we had 12,000 people. And that was, that was a healthcare marketing business. And we had wow. 12,000 uh, veterinarians, dentists, and opticians. They happily gave over their contact details to get that book. And all of these people did that because they wanted the book. And the book was, the, was this thing called the ethical bribe. So it's, it's something, because people don't like handing over their, their contact details, but they will if there's a compelling offer for them to do it. And you have to work quite hard to show them that it is not a con, that it is genuinely free. You know, there's no, there's no fix, there's no fiddle or whatsoever. So I would recommend you switch to that kind of approach. And you, you literally give them something, some information that, that's free in return for their contact details. And it's got to be packaged well. And a book is great packaging because that book, and I'll let you into a secret, that book costs me 49 pence per copy. So I had 5,000 printed, 49 pence is probably 70 cents, 80 cents, something like that, or maybe 65, 70 cents. It's not a great deal of money. It costs me a hell of a lot more in postage than it does in, you know, the natural printing it, but it's, it's the perceived value. And we write 4.99 or 4, $4.99 $4.99 on the back of that book. And that's the perceived value of that book when actually it costs, you know, not, not under a dollar or under, under a pound. It's not a great deal at all. So I would put together some kind of packaged information, but nothing techie, nothing technical. The, the second you say the word network, you, you're dead. You know, the second you start talking about vendors, you're dead. I would focus on data security. Data security is the big thing right now. It's the hot topic. Even those uneducated business owners and managers that you want to reach who don't actually know much about data security know that they don't want to be hacked. This, would you agree with this, that they're starting to be a lot more aware of, of, of the risks of this kind of 100%. Stuff? We're actually dealing with one of our largest customers right now. Their entire uh, financial package uh, hosting infrastructure was compromised. Oh. Um, it took almost four weeks to get their uh, books back. That's horrendous. It's, so what, oh, it's a disaster. Yeah, it is a disaster. disaster. What you could do, and this is a bit sneaky, and you might have to be a bit cute with this, but you could take that story and you could actually turn that into an anonymous case study. So you could strip out any details that identify the business. You could strip out anything, because you don't want to embarrass your clients, of course. No one wants to do that. But that would actually be an incredible ethical bribe. A case, you know, Read how one Philadelphia business... Um, was hacked so badly they couldn't access their own their own accounting system for four weeks or or, or whatever whatever the sort of the big headline is. The the vendor was completely incommunicated. In there was no communication whatsoever uh, from the vendor's perspective about what had actually happened. And what had happened is we I had called a bunch of consultants and third parties around this and sort of eked out the details you know piece by piece from these people. Um, but it seems like nothing was siphoned off. Everything was basically encrypted, including all the files, Active Directory servers, everything. It was all, all destroyed. So they were completely screwed. Yep. See, that would, that would make a great case study. You wouldn't go into the details of it. You wouldn't identify them. You, go in, you wouldn't go into the technical details, but you'd focus on the emotionals. I mean, if, what, what was the conversation that you had with the business owner? How, how did he or she um, talk to you when they were telling you about this problem? So, yeah, I mean, we've been working with the CFO and, and she was just, she was like a ship lost at sea. She's like, I don't even know what to do. I don't know which bills to pay. I, I don't know what our receivables are. I have no idea what cash flow looks like. And, you know, she was just paying bills on hunches, you know, uh, based on what, what she think needed to be paid. And it was, it was a, a trying situation for her and the whole, the whole team, her whole finance team. I've just had an amazing idea for, for the title of what this could be called. The conversation you never want to have with your IT support expert. That's awesome. No, it's great. Thank you. Thank you. Perhaps you wouldn't call it IT support expert, but some, something along those lines. That The conversation, the phone call you never want to make to your IT support company. And you could actually tell that story. You could talk about, you know, you could almost put words in her mouth and say that, you know, recreate the conversation that you had, the fact she was lost, she she didn't know what to do. It took four weeks, their suppliers were ringing up. That's amazing. Because you've got to look at this from, what about other CFOs who are reading this and who are thinking, they're looking at this thinking, "I, I cannot imagine being in this situation. That would be hell. I would lose so much time. I would worry so much. You know, how, what effect would that have on my career? Whether you, whether you go with that or do something similar to that, and this applies to everyone listening to this podcast, that kind of case study approach, particularly when you've saved someone, because that, that has a, like a heroic ending where you've saved them and you've put it back to normal and you've put in place measures so they never get hacked again. That's a very, very powerful thing to do. And, and I think ordinary people would find that quite interesting. 
So you need this kind of ethical bribe and you then use your CRM, where whichever CRM you're using to generate the forms on your page, which you've got, which is amazing. And so people fill that in, the CRM then sends them over that ethical bribe. And all of this, of course, is automated. So no human has to get in the way and screw anything up. I think what you're looking for next then, Jim, if you don't have this already in place, is to have then a, a standard email sequence that starts. So when someone joins your list right now, do, do they get a series of emails or is it just a case of of waiting for you to do something? There, there is no drip campaign built into the ConnectWise CRM. Uh, that was one of the major shortcomings of it. The, the challenge I always have, Paul, is, is basically the managing two systems, right? Exporting all the data out of one system and then importing it to another system. It, the, the management piece of that was, was sort of really cumbersome. That's kind of why we looked at building the sync tool. But this is the reason then to cut ConnectWise out of this. And ConnectWise is a great system for servicing clients. And it's not a great system for marketing. And the, the fact that it, you can't do drip campaigns, which is a, it's a basic staple of marketing, shows it. So I would be tempted to, and we won't get drawn into too much of the technicals of this, but I would mm -hmm. be tempted to just stick with Zoho. And I, I've never personally used Zoho, but I'd be very surprised if you couldn't do a, a, what you call a drip campaign or, a, or a, an automated sequence of emails from Zoho when they, when they join your list. I assume you can anyway. Yeah. You can, great. So, so the, the, the reason I can understand your, um, your desire to have all your prospects in ConnectWise, but actually if you, if you keep them all within Zoho, you haven't got to manage two different systems. They come on into Zoho, they fill in the form themselves, they trigger a campaign and you then send them an email every week forever until one of three things happens. Either they buy and they become a client or they die and there's no one to talk to anymore, or they say to you, bye-bye, which is basically they unsubscribe from you. And the standard practice to do this is, first of all, you have that email sequence. So everyone who joins your list, the first, it could be five, it could be 10, uh, but the first, let's say 10 emails that they get are always the same 10 emails. So you have a standard set of emails that you send out to people. And what those emails do is those explore the most important subjects. So you might have an email about laptop encryption. You might have an email about disaster recovery. You might have an email about hacking. You might have an email about uh, reusing passwords. You might have an email about dark web monitoring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So over the first 10 emails, you're covering off all the different subjects that might emotionally affect these people. And then when you reach the end of that email sequence, you drop them into what's called a broadcast bucket. And a broadcast bucket is where once a week you go into Zoho and you send out an email. And that's what people would traditionally think of as sending out the email newsletter. Now, I don't like the newsletter format. I prefer that you just send out an email, one email, one subject. But you, you get the idea from that. So you have a, an automated sequence for everyone joining your list so you can educate them so they're a little bit up to speed. And then because your sequence doesn't go on forever, but because we do want to email people forever, that's when you would have uh, an email going out where you go in and do a broadcast every week. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then also, it seems like segmenting the support email completely from the marketing system. Exactly. Um, exactly. Because yep, yep. the emails you'd send to clients are completely different than you'd send to prospects. With prospects, we want to leverage fear. Um, fear-based marketing. And we, we don't have to be extreme fear-based, but something as simple as someone leaving a laptop on a train and letting someone access all their financial details, there's a huge amount of fear there. And most people are motivated more by the avoidance of fear than they are the opportunity to, to gain something. But you wouldn't use fear-based marketing with your clients because they shouldn't have any fear because you're looking after them. So it's a right. completely different set of, you know, something like Teams, for example, I'm sure your clients uh, use Teams, but they don't use it as well as they could do. For your clients, you'd want to send them lots of information and advice on how to get better at Teams, and all of which the call to action at the end would be, look, anytime we can help you with this, pick up the phone, call the help desk, we'd be delighted to help you, talk you through it, screen share, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas with your prospects, you don't want to screen share with prospects. You don't want to support prospects until they're clients. So what you would do is you tell them all the clever things you can do with teams, but you wouldn't necessarily tell them how to do those clever things. Instead, mm -hmm. you'd say to them, if your IT support company isn't telling you how to do this, we should have a conversation. Hit reply to this email or give us a call on this number. So I, I have a question for you. So based on some of the feedback that you've given me, I'm just going to kind of work my way back here. Sure. So I write a white paper, some sort of case study that talks about, let's say in this situation, uh, the accounting people couldn't get access to their books for four weeks, right? So I write up how it was broken, you know, the, the, the emotions that this caused and then sort of how we fixed it, right? I generate that first. And then I'm going to build some sort of landing page or some sort of page to collect just an email address. Hey, if you want to get the whole story in a PDF form, here it is. Here's a summary of what we talked about, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would potentially market that on LinkedIn as a post and then 
you know, reach out to business owners on Facebook saying, Hey, we just wrote this great content. It was about, you know, one of our customers that lost their data for four weeks and, you know, there's something great. And then try to trickle in and collect these email addresses. And then once I start collecting email addresses from this content, put them into a drip campaign where I'm sort of reaching out to them uh, through two, two different channels. One channel would be a drip campaign that speaks to loss of access to those records. And then when I ran out of that content, then move them into the sort of, sort of like evergreen weekly mailing list. Exactly. Exactly. Because if you think about the okay. three-step system, it's very, well, the three-step strategy, it's very, very simple. It's drive quality traffic, build multiple audiences, and then build a relationship with them. And the first two are one-off tasks. You know, it's a one-off task to drive a bit of traffic. Okay. You have to repeat it weekly, but it's a series of one-off tasks. It's definitely a one-off task to build the audience. They join your email list once, they join you on LinkedIn once, that's it. The thing that goes on forever is the building the relationship. And that's the real secret of this is building relationship. And most MSPs, they might start off with that sequence, but then they never, they get out of the habit of doing the weekly broadcast. And yet that is critical, the most critical thing. You know, I send out uh, uh, two emails a week to my list. One of them is this podcast and another one is, is another piece of content. And it is literally, I, I could be lying in hospital with my arms and legs broken, you know, in traction. And I, you would still, I would still get the nurses to, to prop a laptop up in front of me so I could do my weekly broadcast email because it is such an ingrained habit in me because I know even though it's not going to generate me any cash this week, I know that it helps me to build a relationship with my audiences. And the whole thing with this is that people only buy at the exact moment they're ready to buy. And we don't know when that moment is. For some, it could be tomorrow. For some, it could be a week on Wednesday. For some, it could be you know March next year. So what we've got to do is we've got to keep putting our stuff out in front of people so that we remain top of mind. Because they don't, they forget us very quickly. I mean, your, your clients forget you. You know, never, never mind the prospects. If I was to ring a whole bunch of your clients and ask them what the name of your business was, they wouldn't know what the name of your business was. They wouldn't know it was Proper Sky. They would just say, well, it's, it's the IT support company, isn't it? Um, so if the clients are like that, the prospects certainly don't remember you. You've got very low name recognition, as have all MSPs amongst clients, because we haven't got time or money or energy or effort to go out and do brand marketing. So instead, what we do is we're doing direct response marketing, where we're putting stuff in front of people regularly enough that at the point they're interested, that's the point at which, yes, they, will, they are more likely to pick up the phone or to engage with you. This is great, Paul. This is really wonderful. Can you see how this is kind of the same of what you've been doing already, but we're just putting a little bit more structure onto it? Yeah, exactly. It seems systematized. And, and I understand kind of, you know, basically building an audience and regular content and then making it uh, humanizing it. Right. So taking away a lot of these technical details. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Because we, we, we're trying to talk to their emotions. Mm -hmm. So I've got one final thing to give to you, Jim. And, you know, I don't think it's going to take you that long to get this set up because you've got most of the building blocks in place. You're just reshaping them a certain way. There are three things that I recommend that you do that really will accelerate this and will get you a lot faster to having you sitting down with people actually having proper sales meetings. The first of those is video. Do you have videos on your website at the moment? I do not. You don't. Okay. So video, we, we talked earlier about engagement and how we want to emotionally engage them. Video is the number one engagement tool. Nothing beats having videos. And uh, I have a service in the UK, which unfortunately is not open to you in Philadelphia because my partner won't fly to Philadelphia, which is very selfish of him. It's a great place to go. Why wouldn't you do that? Um, but if you go and have a look at mspvideos.co.uk, so it is, a, it is a British site, mspvideos.co.uk. And on that site, you can see a whole series of examples of the kinds of videos you want on your website. And you'll see there's some great examples of primarily the ones to look at are where the clients are talking about the MSP. Because if you could imagine someone coming into your website and seeing instead of whatever's on your website at the moment, they see a video and the video is your best clients, three or four of them talking about how great your business is. And from a pure persuasion point of view, your clients are a thousand times more persuasive than you could ever be. There's literally nothing that you could say that, that they couldn't say better because they can be more persuasive. This is what we call social proof. And social proof is where most people prefer to do what most other people are doing. And if they can see that already, here are some business owners in this area and, and they trust Jim and his team, therefore they must be people worth trusting. So video is a really, it's an absolute must. And it, it, you know, it's the kind of thing that even if you have to spend a couple of thousand dollars recreating these style of videos that you'd see on my website, it really is worth doing it. Um, the clients that I've got that have put these videos on the website, they, they see a return 
quite quickly. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them see a return really quickly because they are persuading prospects. So video is the first thing I recommend. The second thing I recommend is that you use direct mail. So direct mail is physically sending stuff out to people. I don't know, again, if you, um, if you do any, any posting people, stuff out to people at the moment. I, I don't. I don't. It's, uh, it's new to me. Okay. Well, direct, the beauty of direct mail is, and I don't know if this, this is the same for you as it is for me, but 20 years ago, I had too much in the post and didn't really get many emails. And now in 2020, I have far too many emails and I get very little in the post. I don't know, is that the same for you? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely similar here. Okay, so direct mail is beautiful because it has a huge standout factor. So if you do direct mail well, and, and you can do it badly and you can do it well. Badly is sending out crappy laser printed things on really thin paper, you know, in, in, in nasty envelopes. Everything's very thin, tacky, and nasty. That's a bad way to do direct mail. A great way to do it is to send out beautifully designed, beautifully printed stuff on thick paper that's gone into nice envelopes that's got a stamp on it, as opposed to actually being franked because if it's got a stamp on it, a real person must have done it. And, um, you know, if you were to send out, to take that email sequence that we were talking about earlier, where you're sending out 10 emails to people when they join your list. Once you've got someone's email address, you can pretty much go and look up their website and find out their address. What if as part of that automated sequence, and you can automate these kind of things, you sent out a very, very nice piece of direct mail that was just introducing them to your company? And obviously you'd make it more about them than about you because all good marketing is more about the prospect than it is about the, the, the seller. But you sent something out. It could even be like a four page piece of direct mail that's nicely folded. It's full color. It's been done for you perhaps by a service like Stamp, which is S-T-A-N-N-P.com. So it looks like Stamp, but it's actually S-T-A-N-O-V-E-M-B-E-R-P.com, which operates in both the US and the UK. And you, know, you can automate, they have APIs. You can automate sending out a piece of direct mail to someone uh, via via your via your CRM and using Stamp. Now imagine what an impact that's going to have on them. It's going to have a huge impact on them. In fact, you could take that a step further using the word impact. And we, we've talked, uh, I can't remember if it's been on the podcast before or not, we've talked about using something called impact boxes. In fact, yes, this was in the podcast a number of weeks ago. An impact box is where you send a box of stuff to someone. So you don't just send them just a letter, an introductory letter, but there's like an introductory letter and there might be some free gifts in there. There might be some chocolate bars. There might be a mouse mat if people still use mouse mats. It might be a, like a beer mat. You could have some branded stuff. This is the kind of stuff that you can let your imagination imagination go wild and you're kind of restricted really by budget and imagination and that's all but there's a real power of sending stuff out to people and i don't know if this is the case in the us i, I suspect it would be but here in the uk print is really cheap right now and that's because over a number of years lots of printers bought lots of really really big print printing machines and they're just being underused right now so the cost of printing has come down dramatically and i'd be very surprised if that wasn't the case in the states as well and of course you can send it to another state or to you know another part of the country and have printing done elsewhere and have it shipped over to you because sh shipping of course is, is is relatively cheap these days so I definitely think you should do print. The third thing that I think you should do, which would really catapult your relationship with people forward, is to get someone to call your databases for you. So you've got your LinkedIn database, you've got your uh, email database, um, you might have a, a Facebook database as well, people you're connected to on Facebook. Uh, if you wanted retail businesses, you might have an Instagram database as well, or if you're really passionate about Twitter, you might have people you're connected to on Twitter. The thing that really moves your relationship forward with all of these people is somebody picking up the phone and calling them on your behalf. Mm -hmm. And this is not telephone selling. This is not a telesales job. Because telesales, we all have negative thoughts when we think about telesales. Telesales is an awful job. It's people who don't want to make the phone calls ringing people who don't want to receive their phone calls. Yep. And, you know, like spam calls. No, no one likes making or receiving those. But what we're doing is warm calling. And you want someone, um, typically a back-to-work mum would be great for this, uh, someone to come and sit in your office for two to three hours a day and they're just picking up the phone and they're calling people on your behalf. And the conversation literally should be, oh, hi, David, it's Sandra here calling from Jim Smith's office at Proper Sky. Um, he just asked me to give you a call and then the conversation goes on from there. And what they're doing is they're building the relationship on your behalf. And they, they might ask key questions just such as, um, so do you have someone looking after your IT right now? Oh, you do? Okay. And do you know roughly when your contract ends? We all know the power of knowing when someone's contract is up. Or you might ask them the, the best question anyone can ever ask a prospect, which is on a scale of one to 10, where one is awful and 10 is amazing. How would you rank your current IT support company? 
And obviously, if they rank them highly, there's not much of an opportunity for you there. But if it's anything sort of seven, six or below, there's a massive opportunity for you there. And then a follow-up question from that could be, why did you give them that score? which is really good at uncovering what it is that they've done to emotionally unengage their existing clients. But there's a real power in this. When, when I had my healthcare marketing business, the one I sold in 2016, we had 12,000 prospects. We sent two emails out a week. So that's 24,000 emails a week going out. And we had a three strong team of people. We called them the telephone intervention team. And their job was to ring people who clicked on emails. So we had a couple of thousand clicks a week. That meant that they were active. These people are alive. They're reading our stuff. They're consuming our content. We rang them. We didn't ring a couple of thousand. We rang probably a few hundred every week. And then the job of the telephone intervention team was to book a sales meeting. And that was it. And it might have taken them something like 40 to 50 to maybe even 70, 80 dials to get hold of. And I think we needed to speak to 15 to 20 people to actually book a sales meeting. But it meant that each person in a day could book one, maybe two sales calls. And, and just off the back of sending 24,000 emails a week and having three people phoning those people, we were able to keep two field sales executives, two field sales reps busy out on the road seeing people. And, and that was the system that, that we, we used to grow and, and to maintain that business. And it was beautiful. And do you know what? If I owned an MSP tomorrow, I would put exactly that system in. So everything we've just talked about here, I would do that. Now, you wouldn't necessarily scale it to, to that height, but someone making calls for two to three hours a day, and I would suggest the next step is not jumping straight to a sales meeting. The next step is probably 15 minutes on the phone with Jim or whoever, whoever does the selling, whoever is the, the technical salesperson within the business, which I guess would be you, wouldn't it? Yeah, for right now it is. Yeah, but yeah. basically, yeah, pre-qualifying pre the, the sales lead. Yeah, great. So you'd be delighted to have two 15-minute phone calls a week with prospects. That, that would and, be fantastic. Oh, wouldn't it be? Well, that would change everything because that, that would turn into one, maybe two sales meetings every week. And we all know that, that actually you get to a point very quickly where you, you don't want any more of those sales meetings because there's only a finite number of new people that you can onboard. Exactly. So I think we've, we've kind of reached a, a natural end and you can imagine I could talk for another five hours about stuff that you could do, details that we've kind of skipped over. Have you got any questions, Jim? And I'm, I'm more than happy to be available to you on email and, and I'll, um, off the end of this recording, I'll, I'll give you my email address and you're more than welcome to, sort of, you know, as you're implementing this to just keep, keep talking to me. And that's my way of saying thank you for, for sharing this with our audience. But what, what other questions do you have right now? that I So, so I think one of the challenges I have, right? So as I'm moving as a business owner from doing the work to managing the work. And I think one of the challenges I have is freeing up either the time or the funds to get high quality marketing work done. Like writing those articles for me is tedious and it, it's, it's emotionally draining. Like I have a hard time generating this content. But what I found is that the five or six you know, blog posts that I've actually spent the time to write have 10 times more engagement than any of the stuff that I've purchased. Is, is there a service that you recommend? Is there a point that you recommend? Is there a, a, a strategy? Where do I set that line as an owner that, that has these time constraints on generating good stuff that people want to read while not, you know, watering down the messaging or, or, or anything along those lines? Can I ask how old you are, Jim? Uh, 40. 40, okay. So um, do you have a family? I do. I do. A six-year-old and a four-year-old. Oh, perfect. Okay. I have a nine-year-old. So um, kids, kids are great at that age, aren't they? Yeah. Um, until they turn into teenagers and then they stop being fun, I'm told. Um, so you, you want to spend more time with your family, but you also want to grow your business so you can get more cash. So you, the family can do the things that the family wants to do. You know, we're all looking for a balance of time and cash and family and fun because you want to have some fun as well. But also we want to do some meaningful work. And that's really interesting. You say that when you go through the pain of writing that blog article, you get a better response from it. And no wonder, because you've got a passion for it that, that no one else will have. There is a, a wonderful acronym um, that, that I use a lot, which is DOA. And if I said to you that, uh, let's say I've been watching CSI Philadelphia, if such a thing exists, and, and the, the guy was DOA, what would that traditionally mean? Uh, dead on arrival. Exactly. And that's what we as business owners will be if we keep trying to do everything in the business. So there has to come a point where we flip that acronym around and we turn it into something else. We turn it into delegate, outsource, automate. And I think this is the secret to being a successful business owner who also doesn't get divorced and sees their kids loads and, and also has lots of cash in the bank. You've got to take every single job that has to be done and you've got to ask yourself, do I really need to do this? Because you should only do what only you can do. 
And the reality is there are a billion writers out there who can write this content for you. So can you delegate it to someone on your team? Probably not this job. There are many other jobs you can, technical jobs, especially if you're caught doing any kind of technical work. Um, but anything, something like this, you couldn't delegate. Therefore, could you outsource it in some way? There are a couple of platforms for you to look at. One is called Fiverr.com. Fiverr has two R's at the end. Mm-hmm. And the other one is called peopleperhour.com. Fiverr seems to be international. People per hour seems to be more UK-based. There's one which seems to be more stateside-based, and that's upwork.com. And what these platforms are, are they're places where you can hire people to do services on your behalf. So if you went into these platforms and typed in article writing, and you'll see there are a lot of article writers out there, and you want to pick for, for a writing job, you want to pick someone who is based in your country and speaks your language natively because you, you, you don't want to have any kind of language barriers. There's lots of things you can outsource offshore you know, to, to other countries, but writing isn't one of them. That's one of, that's one of the things that has to be done you know, by someone that lives in, and speaks, lives in your country and speaks your language. So you'd go in there and you'd look for a writer. And what I would recommend to find the perfect writer is that you give the exact same brief to three or more writers that you like the look of. So you go and look at their portfolios, you look at their costs, and you'll, you'll soon find three or four that you like the look of. But then you give those three or four or five exactly the same job. And what I'd recommend that you do is you record uh, a short MP3 brief. And that's how you ensure that they all get exactly the same brief. So it could be, let's, let's, let's fall back on laptop encryption again. Could be that you want to do an article on laptop encryption. So you literally grab your phone, you record a brief, you, you tell them about why it's important, you talk about what you want to get over in the article, you, you remind them that it's got to be written from, to, to appeal to an ordinary person who doesn't know about technology, and then you'd send those different writers that exact brief. Then you get back your three, four, five pieces of work, and you can now compare those pieces of work. So you can see which piece of work you like the best, and that's a great way to find a new writer you then agree to talk to them. It might be weekly, it might be monthly, but essentially you jump on a video call or a phone call together and you talk about the subjects you want them to write. And essentially, Jim, you write the content without having to write it. So Mm -hmm. you make sure you record that call. Um, Let's say it was, you were talking about disaster recovery and, and, and you'd say, right, let me give you a case study of disaster recovery gone wrong. And then you talk and we, we switch you on and we have five minutes of you talking about this and how the client was an idiot and this and that, and this and that, and this and that. And, and at the end of it, you've, you've given that writer loads of content. And because they've been recording it, they can go and get that transcribed somewhere like rev.com or one of the other transcription services available. And they can literally take your words and then just shape your words and, and put some structure into it and make sure the grammar's correct and all of that kind of stuff. Because we don't speak as well as we write. We, we speak in, in a completely different way to, to our written skills. But a good writer would be able to turn that content around. So it's your content that's taken you five to 10 minutes to get it out your head. And then someone else has spent a couple of hours shaping it into great written content. That's great. That's great advice. Thank you. Thank you. And that, by the way, that, that um, system for finding writers, loads of the, the people I talk to and the MSPs I work with have tried that and it worked beautifully. And then you, you you, um, you can stick with that writer on the platform because these platforms are they're, they're places for you to find people to do work, but they also make it safe. Safe for both you and the, and the seller, actually. You pay money into the platform to show that you've got the money, but you don't release the money until you're happy with it. It's like PayPal used to be 20 years ago. You know, it was kind of an escrow system. Um, what I found is when you've, when you've worked with someone for a couple of months and you're loving their work, you just come off platform. And you have to be careful how you have that conversation because the platforms don't like it. But there's no point you paying their fee. And well, put it like this, you, you can pay less money and they can earn more money if you come off platform. But obviously you need that relationship and that, that trust first. Because once you come off platform, there's always that risk that, that you know, you're not, the quality is going to go down or, you, or you're not going to get what you've paid for. Okay, that's great. Lovely. Jim, thank you so much. You've been absolutely brilliant. And I hope that's been useful to you. I'm going to give you my email address in a second when we stop the recording. But thank you so much. And I genuinely genuinely hope that if you can put some of this stuff into place, that it's going to make such a difference to you getting more new clients into the business. Oh, absolutely. So I, we could do a, a case study follow-up in uh, how I took your advice and uh, sort of the impact it's had on my business sales, I think would be a great second follow-up podcast. So I, I can't thank you enough for the time and the energy. And I'm, I'm sorry to find your podcast sooner. Uh, the, the quality is, is stellar, Paul. You do a great job. You share a lot and I, I've been enjoying everything about it. It's been wonderful. Coming up next week. Next week, we're back to our more usual format. I've got an interview with Darren Wingham. He's an MSP video specialist based in the UK and he's going to tell you how to influence people on your website through the power of using video. 
We're also going to talk about the most frictionless call to action on your website, how to get people to book more phone calls with you. And we'll start to look at a marketing superpower of understanding how prospects think. Essentially, if you want to influence what they buy, you've got to look through their eyes. See you next week. Made in the UK for MSPs around the world. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast.